Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. An important discussion about communication style as Doug Ford gives us a lesson in languages. Plus, talking to the vaccine hesitant with the Ontario Medical Association. And oh my goodness, I've got breaking news on Bridgerton. Oh, the Duke is here. Let's get to it. Taizai Jolly, low fun, high okay. Stare a casa, curre roll. Cadete a casa, shalik. Doug. All right, thank you. Thank you, Doug Ford. Doug Ford, we're going to get to Doug Ford's language lessons coming up in the program today. Doug Ford, just actually outside the uh, closet here where I'm broadcasting. Doug Ford's right out there. I think he's got a Roman candle with him. Oh, man. You know, uh, Ford yesterday spoke to the head of uh, Pfizer about the reduction in shipments of vaccines to Canada. Uh, the Pfizer president of Canada, a guy by the name of Cole Pinnell, received that call. And according to Ford's office, quote, he reiterated the serious impact these canceled shipments will have on Ontario and sought answers as to why Canada is not receiving vaccines as quickly as other countries. Unquote that from Premier Ford's office about the phone call. The call from Doug Ford to the head of Pfizer. Does anybody need a reminder of what the premier promised to do to the head of Pfizer? Anybody? You might remember it was it was something involving a yin yang. I'd be up that guy's yin yang so far with a firecracker he wouldn't know what hit him. Man. I actually had to go to the Urban Dictionary to make sure that I understood what a yin yang was. And uh, if you're if you're not certain, uh, and I only offer this uh, by way of explanation, because here on this Alan Carter Radio program on Global News Radio, we're all about the truth and understanding and knowing what's going on. The yin yang is slang for anus. So just I just leave that there. Now, no question, Doug Ford is quotable. That is that is a that's a jaw dropper of a quote right there. That's a butt clencher of a quote is what that is. Is it effective? Really, I think that's up for you to decide. If you are a regular listener to this program, thank you, thank you kindly. The firecracker is on the way. Uh, but I say this all the time that the the way that a politician can be celebrated for the way they communicate today can be the albatross around their neck tomorrow and Doug Ford really falls into this because of this this sort of glib populist way of speaking while Doug Ford enjoys positive support and the polls say that he does then it it works for him but the polls also show that his support is dropping. It has dropped rather significantly. And as the pandemic stretches out and there are more questions about long-term care or vaccines or schools or you, you pick an issue. And then we get a bunch of yahoos and the next thing you know, we're sticking a firecracker up some pharmaceutical CEO's backside. And it might be entertaining but there's going to be a moment when it's going to stop being entertaining for a majority of Ontarians. And Doug Ford has to be careful about that. That is my warning to the Premier. 
And right now, every political leader in Canada is kind of holding a bit of a bomb. You know, if you're on top of the bomb and it goes off, you're going to go sky high on the polls. And if you're beneath the bomb, it's going to blow you right into retirement. And that bomb is the vaccine rollout. Trudeau is likely going to bet it all later this year, just push all in if the rollout goes well. You can expect that the federal government will be agitating for a federal election if things go well. But he'll hold on desperately if dwindles do if supplies of the vaccine dwindle or if we feel that the federal procurement hasn't worked you know there's a risk and reward for doug ford here as well and so that was kind of behind the careful ish tone of tuesday's wig out by the premier you know he, he went on to say i'm not blaming the the prime minister i'm not blaming justin trudeau about the supplies from pfizer it's just that i'm willing to go places with a firecracker that justin trudeau will not and that is some crafty ass passive aggressiveness he said it without saying it he played to nationalist pride We're part of the G7, said Doug Ford. You know, Canadians will wait in line for a double-double and a just ridiculously bad bagel sandwich. Don't, Don't kid yourself, the food is terrible there. But don't make us take a back seat to any other mid-level power in the world. You hear us, France? You hear us? Vive le vaccine libre. Doug? We stay à la maison. Oh, And this brings me to the kind of glib, populist, quotable messaging that Doug Ford uses, and very effectively sometimes, because, you know, last week he he threw that bad boy out. A la maison, he threw that out. And it got a ton of play. It got a ton of play. I played it like a dozen times here on this radio show. And obviously his comms team noticed that and thought, you know what, we that seems, that's that's working. And so... It's time for language lessons with Dofo. Taizai jolly, low fun, high okay. Stare e casa, kure ro. Cadete an casa, shalik fi alabate. Manatili sabahai, garme rahir. This is Doug Ford running through. Stay home in many, many different languages. Okay, I got the idea. I got it. I got it. I got it. Thank you. Thank you, Doug Ford. Uh, here is a reaction from Andrew Boozeri, who is a University Health Network researcher, specialist in COVID, who tweeted this out in response to the language lessons from Doug Ford. This far into the pandemic, you can translate public health messaging into 1,000 languages. But if people are still being jammed on the bus to go to work or without paid sick leave, COVID will still respond to the universal language of poverty. And so this is my point. You know, you might listen to the Doug Ford language lesson as you peel through all this. Anything? Well, that, that, that's entertaining. I like that. That's good. It's a good idea. It's a nice clip. It's shareable. It's good communication. But my point being is that as we move further into this pandemic and there are more and more questions about the provincial rollout, less and less will it be effective for Doug Ford.
Let's check some stats on the vaccine, shall we? Ontario administered close to 16,000 doses of COVID-19 by 8 p.m. yesterday. 40,000 people in the province of Ontario have now been fully vaccinated with the required two doses. And if you are keeping score, that by the way, that's 40,225 with two doses. There are 14.5 million of us in the province. So you get a sense of the bomb that politicians are holding, including Doug Ford, because he can say, well, you know, it's a, I'm going to crawl up a backside with a firecracker. But if people begin to believe that the provincial rollout is to blame, they will blame Doug Ford. If Doug Ford can say, well, any kind of hiccup and rollout, that's, that's on JT because he won't go where I'll go. Well, that'll be on the feds. And so that is the play you're going to see. Just You need to be able to perceive the news that you read and that you hear through that prism. That neither side will point their fingers directly and say, it's that guy's fault. I mean, we're not at that point yet. And say, well, I'm not going to blame that other guy, but I'm on line two and I got a cherry bomb. You know what I mean? In the interim, though, as we begin to get more vaccines, here's the the news story that's going to continue to develop and dominate. And and you just kind of have to watch for the pivot on on this, because right now the the news story is going to be, of course, about the lack of vaccine and the number of people who want it. And we don't have enough. And that's a problem. This is from uh, Canadian Press this morning. A senior staff member in an Ontario hospital has now retired. After it turns out a relative was vaccinated against COVID-19 at a clinic intended for healthcare workers. This is from Headwaters Healthcare Center in Orangeville. It has apologized for what it calls an isolated incident. The center won't name the individual beyond the title of staff director saying privacy reasons. Can't tell you who this uh, this senior manager was other than staff director, but the CEO of the hospital says what happens, what happened is that the employee's relative was at the hospital for some other reason. Yeah, I'm bringing you soup. Oh, hey, there's a vaccination clinic down. Why don't you just pop in there? Nobody will notice. Well, we noticed. And so that person has been, quote unquote, retired. Meanwhile, eight people not on the priority list were mistakenly given the COVID-19 vaccine at the Metro Toronto Convention Center this week. It's, of course, shut down now. But there was an online registration link to book appointments that was erroneously shared. Oh, look at this link I have. Sure, I'll take it. I'll get some of that. And so... Those are the stories you're going to hear right now. The you know the vaccine is going to the wrong people. There's going to be people upset that I should be first in line. And so that's where we are right now. And what I have been saying, and when we start talking about the vaccine hesitant, maybe you're one of those people out there listening to me right now. It's like, well, I'm not amongst those people. I'm not upset about who's getting it right now because I'm not interested in getting it at all. And what I have said to those people is, I don't care about you. You just, whatever. I, you know what? Right now we got bigger problems. We'll get to you later. Because the vaccine hesitant, that's not going to be an issue when we can't get any vaccine. Turns out, turns out, and this is going to come as a big shocker to you, I may be wrong. I may be wrong about the vaccine hesitant and how we have to address the people who are saying, well, I don't think I'm going to get it.
The case count's looking pretty good in Ontario today, again, below 3,000, although we have a reporting anomaly. Oh, this is an anomaly. Uh, And we've had that for the last couple of days, and just another reason that you really don't need to pay attention to the specifics on the daily case count. Don't get yourself all wrapped up on whether it's over 3,000 today or under 3,000 the next day. You just drive yourself crazy, and quite frankly, what you look at is a kind of a rolling seven-day average, and the early indication is that there seems to be, and and, and I'm, I'm taking this from some of the experts that have been looking at the numbers, there seems to be some indication that the lockdown that went into place on the 26th is starting to pay off. Early days, early days. If you're with us in our last segment, we're talking about the vaccine, and we're talking about the problems with the vaccine rollout, the fact that we are having to uh, shut down our vaccination clinics and all kinds of concerns about, you know, who's possibly getting the vaccine when they shouldn't, whether or not, you know, friends and family of healthcare workers are getting it before the frontline workers, and we've seen that already, and people getting it who shouldn't get it. So there's so much appetite for the vaccine right now. It can be easy to really forget about the fact that there is a sizable population out there who are not so certain that they will actually get this thing. Now, we've addressed this before on the radio program. And what I've generally said is I'm not really interested in amplifying those concerns because, quite frankly, there are so many of us who want to do the right thing, who want to get the vaccine. But The reality is, and this is according to the Ontario Medical Association that put out a report yesterday saying that we're going to really quickly get to a point where we are going to have enough vaccine. All of a sudden it's going to come flooding in, especially as we get perhaps a couple of more vaccines approved. It's going to come flooding in, may not be for a couple of months, and if we don't tackle this issue right here and right now, then that is going to be a problem. I'm hoping she's on the line right now. Dr. Samantha Hill, the president from the Ontario Medical Association. Doc, are you with me? Thanks for having me on the air. Thank you again for being here. When you start looking at age groups, especially those who are vaccine hesitant, who are the most significantly vaccine hesitant? It's interesting, actually, because we're seeing a lot of vaccine hesitancy amongst each of the groups, and they follow a bit of a different logic, a little bit of a different set of concerns if you want to clump people together. And for the younger group, it often tends to be a lot about autonomy. You can't tell me what to do with my body. You can't mandate what I have to do. Whereas for some of the less young people, more of my age group, um, there seems to be a little bit more of the conspiracy theory concepts about, you know, it wasn't rapidly tested or it uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conspiracy. And I've even heard things like they're injecting data probes so they can track us, things like that. So it is really interesting that despite the fact that the rationale may change, the hesitancy is pretty continuous throughout most of the age cohorts, right up until about 50 or 60. And, and you, as you break it down, you point out that 25 to 34, more conspiracy theories, uh, theories, pardon me, in that age group, but then 35 to 44, more supportive of a vaccine. And is it just something about perhaps social media and the way a a certain demographic might consume news and information that is driving this hesitancy? So that's a great question. The why is actually probably the most important question, and it's one not enough people are asking, so I thank you for asking it. It may be about social media and how they're consuming that social media. 
it may be about social media and how they're consuming that social media. It may also be about lived experiences and memories, right? The older cohort might remember SARS more clearly than the younger cohort does. The even older cohort certainly remember things like polio and those kinds of epidemics. And so part of it is about generational change and thinking. Part of it is probably about how we integrate our news and access our news and information. And part of it has to be about our own individual lives and growth processes. I'm speaking with the president of the Ontario Medical Association, Dr. Samantha Hill, about vaccine hesitancy. Let's tackle some of this stuff uh, head on. And, and wait a minute, before I get to that, uh, let's talk about the cultural thing, because I, I do want to talk about the various groups. And, and you point out black Canadians being more hesitant uh, could, can you address how we communicate to different segments of the population? Obviously, we're not all the same. We don't have the same lived experiences, as you point out. Right. So when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, and I, I do hesitate even to use that strong of a language, maybe it's better to say poor uptake of vaccines. You have to think about a lot of different reasons. And some of those reasons are hesitancy or mistrust and misinformation. Some of those reasons are also just about convenience and whether or not we've made it easy enough for people to receive the vaccine. So when we talk about our Black communities and we're hearing that there are concerns that the uptake there may not be as high, we have to remember, first of all, the historical context of that. Stories like Tuskegee, stories of medical, what would currently be considered malpractice, where unethical things were happening to people of certain backgrounds, particularly our Black and Indigenous communities here. And you have to remember that because they remember it. We may not have lived it, but their grandparents did, and some of their parents may have been part of it. And so that's part of their, their cultural history and their cultural knowledge. And it's really important to consider that when you're communicating with people. The other part of it, though, is that for a lot of people, the cultural context overlaps with a socioeconomic context. And what I mean by that is that many of our Black people live in certain communities that tend to be less well off, and they fall into that socioeconomic demographic of being poor, having less access to some of the things that the higher socioeconomic class does. And that means that they may be working more jobs, they may have to be on TTC more often, they may have bigger families. And when you think about all of that, you really have to take into account have we made it easy enough for people to get the vaccine? Is part of the reason we might see less uptake because they simply can't afford to take two hours out of their day to go get the vaccine and come back when that time isn't paid and isn't part of the normal schedule? You point out, and and I said in my introduction, you know, that I had previously said, you know, we really shouldn't be worrying too much about those who are, and I take your point about hesitancy not being perhaps the right terminology, but those that are reluctant, if we can use that kind of term. Because right now, right here, we have far more people who want it than we actually have vaccine. But your point being that pretty soon that that might change. And we don't address that problem right now. We're going to have an issue later on this year. So let's get to it right uh, in terms of the, the major concerns I hear on, on this radio station when I open up the phone lines. Let's start with the vaccine was developed too quickly and that it was a rush and we don't know what the long-term effects of it might be. So it's a great question and it's worth taking some time to decide and to discuss about. So the idea that the vaccine was developed quickly is absolutely true. We saw an amazing collaboration of science and administration of people across countries and across cities collaborate and come together in ways that 
have never been done before and probably weren't even possible before we had today's technology. And that allowed us to work at our best. It allowed us to bring the best of the scientific communities together so that ideas about mRNA vaccines, which have been discussed and studied for years now, could actually be put into practice. And it allowed us to move through some of the bureaucratic steps a little bit faster. Now, that doesn't mean anything was skipped. It just means that less time was spent with papers sitting on desks waiting for answers. When the papers came in, they were addressed rapidly and turned over rapidly because they were prioritized. That allowed us to get this vaccine out and tested in less than a year, which is remarkable. But it's really important that people realize that this type of vaccine has actually been tested on more individuals than many of our previous vaccines had been before they rolled out. And most of the complications that are seen as a result of vaccines are seen within about six weeks. The follow-up period for these studies have all been about eight weeks. So we're in a very good place where I feel comfortable saying, we've done the studies, we've done it properly, we have the data, and we have the data across various cultures as well, which is important to say that this is a reasonably safe vaccine. To sum up, Doctor, what would your message be to those out there who might be hearing your voice right now who are just saying, you know what, I am going to wait, even though we might have enough vaccine that, you know, my name would come up in June, July, August. Remember that the Prime Minister is saying anybody who wants it will be able to get it by the end of September. What's your message to those people? It's such a hard conversation because my first question would be to ask them why and to address their concerns. But if I was to have one message that goes across the board, my message would be this. Getting the vaccine is not just about you. It's about your entire community and the people that you come into contact and trying to get in place enough of us to stand as a wall between us and our most vulnerable. Furthermore, you don't necessarily have the choice you think you have. Our choice about whether or not to get the vaccine is there, but our choice might be to get the vaccine or to get COVID. And I think a lot of people are considering their choice to get the vaccine or to stay healthy. When we have a prevalence of 10 or 20%, that's not necessarily a choice you get to make. For me, if I'm going to be walking around in the world with a prevalence as high as it is in Ontario, I want the protection that can be offered to me. Dr. Samantha Hill is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. I really appreciate being on the program today. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a great day. The fallout from the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline project is already underway. Calgary-based TC Energy has announced plans to cut more than 1,000 construction jobs. The company has suspended work on its portion of the pipeline expansion. Uh, that's, of course, after the president, the new U.S. president, Joe Biden, canceled the permit for the pipeline border crossing. Joe Biden had a message to the rest of the world during his inaugural speech. Here's Joseph Biden yesterday. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. Not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. And we'll lead, not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is Joe Biden during his inaugural address, saying that the Americans, that the U.S. will once again lead by the power of example. Wayne Petrosi is a Ryerson professor, Welcome back to the program, Wayne. What did you make of Biden's inaugural speech? 
Well, I, I think it was uh, he, he struck the right tone. He's always indicated his preferences to find a way to work with uh, folks on the other side of the aisle. And so it wasn't a surprise. He did indicate that uh, once again, he was very strong in denouncing what had taken place uh, in the capital area two weeks before, as we expected. But uh, otherwise, he was focused on making sure that uh, his administration would get right to work as soon as he was inaugurated. It really stuck out to me the term uncivil war. I think that is one that is going to reverberate. You know, we talk about great inaugural speeches. I think that if if there was a moment from that speech yesterday that we will remember, it will be that phrase. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you, 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 you're not alone in uh, picking up that sentiment and, and highlighting that, uh, that, that line in his speech. And, you know, it, 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 I guess, speaks to the, the extent to which just uh, norms were just utterly shattered by the previous administration when it came to how one engages with those who don't agree with you. What does it all mean for Canada? Obviously, we see the uh, immediate uh, fallout with the cancellation of the XL pipeline. Obviously, we know that the uh, new president will make his first foreign leader call to the prime minister. But really, you know, as we begin to view the Trump presidency in the rearview mirror, what kind of relationship will we have with the Americans going forward? We've always had a, a very complicated relationship with them because of the wide variety of issues that uh, uh, connect the two countries, and you know we're going to we're going to return to that, and that means well, there's going to be times when we don't agree, and you know Keystone, uh, I'm not sure why it should have been a surprise to to anybody in Canada, uh, the previous Democratic administration of which Mr. Biden had been a part, had also blocked Keystone. I, I I'm just a bit. Actually, I'm more surprised by the fact that an Alberta premier chose to bet $2 billion on Donald Trump winning the election, and I, which is, a, well, it's, that's a surprising bet, let's put it this way. And, of course, he didn't, and, of course, Mr. Biden did what the, the previous Democratic administration had, had also done. It just doesn't want Keystone XL built. Uh, but other than that... You know, there are going to be plenty of opportunities for, for collaboration between the two countries. We're certainly going to benefit, I think, significantly as the Americans get the pandemic under control, as tourism and convention business returns to normal, as the economy begins to rebound, jobs get created in the, in this, in, in the United States with the stimulus package, the boomerang effect that's going to have on Canadian industry and Canadian employment. But it is, you know, we, we do have a complicated relationship with them. We're not going to like their Buy America policy. We didn't like the previous one of Mr. Trump's. We didn't like the Buy America policy of, of Mr. Biden when he served with, with, uh, with, with the, the, the previous president, Barack Obama. So I, I think the complexity is going to stay there, return, and we're going to find times we agree, sometimes we don't. But in either case, we, we remain the best of friends. You know, I, I think there, there's, you know, so much to be written and talked about, about the, the change in administration and what's different. For example, I saw a picture today that showed that the New York Times and the Washington Post had once again 
uh, resumed deliveries to the White House. The, the papers are back after Donald Trump had banned uh, delivery of the papers. So, I, you know, there's there's so many things that we can talk about that are different. But the, some of the things that are not going to change, for example, the very hard line or hardening of uh, the American line against China that began under Mr. Trump, and I don't see any indication that Mr. Biden will change that. And you mentioned the America First policy, the protectionism that Mr. Trump uh, brought in is likely to be continued, perhaps even strengthened by Mr. Biden, wouldn't you say? I would, I would think, I, I would draw a distinction between Buy America and America First. Uh, you know, Buy America policies are, are a procurement policy. Uh, it's, America's hardly the only country in the world that when it spends public funds, it gives preference to uh, domestic manufacturers, uh, uh, domestic service providers. So, you know, we, we haven't seen the details yet of that Buy America and just how, how, how deep they're going to drill into it in terms of what has to be American in order to qualify uh, for use on a, on a, on a public contract. Um, I think you're right about, you know, the, the, the China case is, 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 I think, going to be, uh, there's going to be some continuity in that. Uh, Mr. Biden and uh, his administration is going to have real issues with China's human rights record, uh, and they have real issues with the extent to which uh, China is attempts to link so clearly and so brazenly uh, its ec- economic benefits that it offers to individual countries in return for political acquiescence or compliance. Uh, so that is going to be an issue, and you know the issues around property, intellectual property theft. Uh, are going to be remain issues. The lack of transparency of, of Chinese firms, you know, yet who nonetheless want to be listed on, say, um, American or other uh, foreign stock exchanges. These are going to continue to be issues. No question about it. Wayne, always great to have you on the program. I appreciate your perspective. Thanks again. Thank you. Have a good day. That is Wayne Petrosi, a professor at Ryerson, talking about the new American administration and what it means for Canada. Now, that's all very important, but I have much more important news. This is vital news for you. I Please gather around the radio because I have got some breaking news that you need to, you need to hear this, folks. You need it. Bridgerton is officially coming back for a second season. Oh, yeah! Netflix has announced plans for a second season of the hit period drama which comes less than a month after the series premiered on the streaming network. Don't try and pretend to me you don't know what Bridgerton is. Because I know you know. You're either under a rock or you... Okay, it's a kind of a soapy romance. And trust me, trust me, it's very, very popular. So popular, in fact, that Variety reports that Netflix has projected Bridgerton's viewing figures to hit 63 million households within just 28 days of being on the platform. And if it does reach that figure, that would make the show the fifth largest Netflix original. It's also reached number one ranking in Netflix top ten in a staggering 76 countries. This thing is popular. And why is it popular? Well, perhaps this might be an indication. Pirated sex scenes from the series have racked up hundreds of thousands of views on adult video streaming platforms. Netflix execs are struggling now to yank the unauthorized shared footage. Netflix has reportedly issued warnings about the misuse of their intellectual property. 
<laughs> hey, you're misusing my naughty property. Uh, some of the clips have been removed, but not all of them. Bridgerton coming back for a second season. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.